This new series of The History Show lines up nicely with the Anglo-Irish treaty negotiations that took place in London a century ago between October and December 1921. In the coming weeks and months, we'll be occasionally presenting Downing Street Diaries, checking in on what was happening in London during this critical period. I'm joined by Dr Dara Gannon, lecturer in Irish Studies at University College Dublin, who's been looking at the extensive archival material on the negotiations in both London and Dublin. And Dara, it was... This week, 100 years ago, the Irish representatives, the plenipotentiaries, which becomes a very loaded phrase towards the end, actually arrived at a 10 Downing Street. Tell me about, tell me about the, two, the composition of the two sides, as it were. Well, this is a historic moment in both Irish and British political history. The delegates from the Irish side, the plenipotentiaries as they were known, arrived just before 11am on the uh, 11th of October 1921 and they were ushered into 10 Downing Street amid great fanfare in the in the crowds. We have hundreds of London Irish cheering, screaming. We have London Irish women praying outside 10 Downing Street with those iconic images. And they appeared in Rolls Royces bedecked in the finest suits and again this was a major transformation really from the kind of gunmen this murder gang image which had been portrayed in the British media to the respectable political leaders of Irish nationalism and the delegates were ushered into 10 Downing Street by David Lloyd George, who um, did not shake their hands, which was very important in political protocols, but nonetheless entered into the negotiating room where they were met by the British negotiating team. And this is a remarkable scene. When you think of someone like Michael Collins, the most wanted man in empire, sitting across the table from Lord Birkenhead, perhaps one of the best representations of of imperialism and the establishment. This is unheard of in Irish nationalist history. And in many ways, this was the beginning of what would actually turn out to be a strange friendship between Collins and Birkenhead. And you, you had people like Winston Churchill, for example. Now, Churchill was kind of in and out of favour, but at this point, he was in. Very much so. He was secretary uh, for the colonies at this stage and he was in a strange liminal place. He was ostensibly a, a liberal, but he was also very strongly associated with the Conservatives. And what has to be remembered, and this was presented to the Irish delegation very strongly by Lloyd George, was that the representatives of Britain were in many ways beholden to the Conservative Party, um, that they could not be seen to concede too much to the Irish delegation in terms of empire, in terms of constitutional status, lest the Conservatives led by Andrew Bonner Law would come in and replace David Lloyd George. And Churchill was someone who had a, a seat in both camps, if you will. Now, the Irish delegation included people like uh, Eamon Duggan, uh, Gavin Duffy. But in reality, did anybody count other than Collins and Griffith? I think that's an important question to raise. De Valera, as we know, did not go to these negotiations. And there is an element of Banquo's ghost, uh, and, you know, not being seated at the table. However, he did send a delegation which he thought would be balanced in the sense of he thought Griffith and Collins would ultimately not break on the empire, that they would be moderate, whereas he trusted Barton, Robert Barton, who was the Minister for Agriculture, and also most importantly, perhaps Erskine Childers, who was a secretary to the delegation, to be representative of the Republican ethos and somewhat form a link to the Dáil Cabinet in Dublin. Now, the delegation, the Irish delegation, went into the lion's mouth, as in, you know, that's 
the door of, of Downing Street, basically, being that lion's mouth. But uh, they were making assurance doubly sure because apparently, the story goes, that there was an airplane <laughs> waiting for them and a fast car waiting for them if everything went, went pear-shaped. And uh, accompanying Michael Collins was one Ned Broy, who had been his one of his spies in the castle. And Broy was basically there as a bodyguard, wasn't he? Absolutely. We shouldn't lose sight, despite the appearances of political respectability, that these were formal negotiations in the centre of empire, that there was still an ongoing threat of a resumption of war. And this was mentioned throughout the negotiations, that if you do not uh, agree on these terms, that there would be a resumption of war. Lloyd George famously used the term war within three days. And Collins was very mindful of this. As you said, he had a plane in waiting which would have taken five of the uh, plenipotentiaries from a London airport back to Dublin uh, lest they be arrested. Collins was followed throughout this period by uh, members of the uh, British Secret Service. So there was an element of playing away from home. And I think that's something that we need to remember in this first week of the negotiations. Amid all the fanfare of Collins, Griffith and co being in London, that they were away from their home base, that they were dislocated from the Dáil cabinet in Dublin. And a question which hasn't really been asked, I don't think, in the history books, is why did de Valera, certainly why did he not go, but why did he agree to send the delegates to London? If you look at the truce negotiations in July, those were agreed between the British and Irish sides in Dublin, in which the Irish Republicans had home advantage. Here, the Irish side were playing away from home and were somewhat dependent on the kind of rules and conventions of British diplomacy led by Lloyd George. Let's use that phrase playing away from home perhaps in a different sense and uh, look at Michael Collins and rumours about uh, what Collins might or might not have been up to extracurricular-wise when he was in London. Well, this is one of those kind of hidden histories, if you will, that has not gone away. So it is important to remember that... I'm blushing, by the way, as I ask the question. I just should point that out. <laughs> I didn't want to give you away there, Miles. It is important to remember that they are there, the plenipotentiaries are there essentially for two months. And this is a gruelling negotiation day by day, week by week. And so they do have a social life of sorts. And Michael Collins is not only the most wanted man in, in the empire in terms of the British authorities, but he was adored by the British public especially by adoring females. There is a, a story which is published in the newspapers whereby Collins attended a requiem mass for the anniversary of uh, Terence McSweeney at Southwark Cathedral on the 25th of October. And as he was leaving the cathedral after mass, he was mobbed by dozens of London Irish girls who showered him with kisses. So he was this kind of pin-up boy for the Irish Republican movement. But it's also important to remember that these were tough negotiations which required some sense of relaxation in the evening. So we have Arthur Griffith going to the theatre. Uh, famously, he was seated by accident by beside Herbert Asquith <laughs> in a West End production, um, got lost on the tube on the way home, which is important to note, and that they had active social lives uh, in the evening. And there is also the accusation of too much drinking going on um, at Hans Place and Cadogan Gardens. And there are reports of bills being sent 
to the doll, which consisted of smashed furniture, excesses of whiskey. And that, of course, would be levelled at the uh, pro-treaty side during the doll debates. So no televisions going through to into swimming pools in those days, but the equivalent thereof. Tell us a little bit more about Cadogan Gardens, about this house, uh, 22 Hands Place, which I think you've done a bit of research on what it would cost to rent a house there now. And basically, uh, the nascent Irish Free State couldn't have afforded it. This was, in many ways, a a political negotiation of the highest order. And in that sense, I'm also thinking in terms of the residences in which the negotiating teams resided. So, for example, the main delegation resided at Hans Place, 22 Hans Place. To give you some sense of the cultural references here, Emily Bronte lived and wrote at 22 Hans Place uh, for about 15 years of her life. This is in West London, uh, salubrious surroundings. Uh, Prince Charles actually went to school just around the corner later in the 20th century primary school. So that gives you some sense of the kind of prestige and status associated with not only the area, but also these negotiations. Interestingly, you referred to Ned Broy earlier. Collins and his retinue of gunmen, primarily the squad and some close IRB associates, actually resided elsewhere about a quarter of a mile away at 15 Cadogan Gardens. I, as you said, I looked into the, the price of, of renting there. Not that I can afford that uh, in 2021 myself. It costs today to rent an apartment in Cadogan Gardens about £10,000. So this was again... Salubrious Sorry, surroundings. Sorry, is that a, a month, a year? What a, month, a month. A month. £10,000 a month. Okay. Just to give you some sense, they're right next door to Harrods. Collins actually would look in the windows enviously at Harrods. But it's often remarked that there were differences in the negotiating teams, you know, politically, but there was also a sense of us and them. So at 15 Cadogan Gardens, Collins and his retinue of IRB and IRA gunmen often spoke of the politicians at Hans Place, whereas Collins was kind of the, the leader of the gang, so to speak. And so there was a difference of view as to what the you know, negotiations were about between the political aims and the kind of ordinary guerrillas who were now based at Cadogan Gardens. Well, thank you very much indeed for giving us an idea, a notion of the personalities involved and some of the exotic locations involved as well. Two weeks from now, we'll talk maybe a little bit more about some of the politics of uh, what was going on. But uh, for now, Dr. Dara Gannon, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And uh, as I say, Dara will be back occasionally throughout this series of The History Show for more of the Downing Street Diaries illuminating what was happening in London a century ago. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Next week on the programme, we'll be talking about the life and legacy of Anna Parnell, the founder of the Ladies' Land League. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE Radio 1. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.